correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. radiocom Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPGs, a podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. What's up, Gamer Nation? Welcome back to Me and Steve. And once again, we're down to one Steve because the other Steve had a lot of nerve and went on vacation. So you've only got me. Well, sort of. I do have a guest this week, but before I get to our guest... I want to tell you about our D20 podcast of the week, which is the Genesis Archive, which is a Genesis-based actual play. And their story takes place actually in Las Vegas. And it's a, I'm going to call it urban fantasy because I don't know a better term for it, but it's it's a pretty unique blend of a lot of different urban mythology all running around in Las Vegas, where, of course, you can have anything happen because it's Vegas. So you want to check them out? You can find them at anchor.fm slash the Genesis Archives, and we'll put a link in the show notes. So, that being said, because Steve is not here this week, and, well, I will sit there and talk to myself and, quite frankly, do so a lot, I didn't want to just have you all listen to me talk to myself. So, I got a hold of someone who I figured I could have come on and have a talk around ways to make homebrew items, classes, stuff for your games, but how to do it without causing the infamous power spirals that we talked about a little while ago. So to that end, uh, I'd like to welcome Mr. Brett Bowen to the show. Uh, Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. So a little bit of background for the rest of you. Brett, at this point, is part of Studio 404 Games, which I believe primarily does stuff for Genesis through the Foundry. But Brett has also worked on a couple of other titles for other publishers. And so he's got a little bit of a background in doing what we're talking about for published material, so I figured he might have some insights that he could share with us to, when I say, help us all make things that aren't going to wreck things. <laughs> uh, yes, develop the system without breaking it. Pretty much, because, you know, look, everybody always wants the next cool new toy. The problem, and look, we've all seen it happen in games, right, is you make the cool new toy, and now you got to make three or four more cool new toys, because now one person is doing so much better than the other people, and then now you've got four cool new toys, and oh crap, now the monsters aren't doing enough cool stuff, and <laughs> round and round it goes. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's one thing when the professionals are doing their own expansion creep because they have a expansion come out, and everything is new and shiny and looks like it's so much better, but it takes a while to figure out that it is actually balanced from perhaps a certain point of view or a scenario you haven't seen yet, but from the player's perspective, it's all ooh, this is so new, and it's totally better than these other things that we had. You know, All these old toys are, are rotten and dusty. We don't want those anymore. Uh, new toys, yes, give us more of those. Well, as a, as a fan of the Palladium Rifts universe, I dare say there are professionals who don't necessarily pay the most attention to that as well. It is definitely something that I think has improved over the entire industry since its beginning. Probably. I definitely have to say that uh, Rifts, mm, yeah, Rifts needs an extra letter in there for expansions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's an amazing world, but it, yeah, I've, I've talked about it before. And look, I don't want to, to, to tell anyone that something they like and love is, is bad. <laughs> um, 
because and, and I'll be I'll be I I love the world concept, but I just I mean I've got a stack of books sitting here right next to me, and and the power creep. Well, it's it's more than creep. Let's put it that way. Oh uh, yes, I'm aware. Uh, I remember at one point uh, playing a game where I was just a little like TMNT half animal uh, wizard, and yet somebody else who was from the most latest book was a this huge giant person with MDC everything, and there was just didn't seem to be any way that we could really compete with each other. It was just okay. Yes, I can barely do MDC damage, and you're all MDC damage. This yeah. is fair somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I don't think that you know incredible balance is a thing that you have to have, but because it is a, a you know role playing games are a we'll call it a community event, even if it's just a community of say four or five. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 whole thing is that you're all enjoying this together. And especially in a lot of the older games where combat was such a primary focus, or really, if, if you have any one specific, not even specific, but if you have any one kind of common area you focus on, and one character is much better at that, much more proficient, whatever, mm-hmm. they're going to end up with more of the spotlight. And so now we have, you know, you have Derek and the dominoes instead of four dominoes. And I know that's not a great analogy, but it was the quickest <laughs> one I could come up with. So as we all know, gaming, or at least uh, the the crunchier the game, the more probabilities and statistics come into play. Uh, Because if there are dice involved, there is a probability and statistics. And if there are modifiers to those dice, that complicates things even further. So the abilities that modify those are part of that scenario. But we also know that gaming is more art than science after you get away from those core disciplines of the mathematics behind it. The mathematic principles set the basis of the, the rules that you follow. Right. But then the art is how the GM focuses the play, the game. And that's exactly what you're talking about insofar as if the GM focuses only on combat, then the players are the players that excel are going to be the combat monsters uh, or the combat-focused characters. Uh, right. If there's a socialite in there, they might not have the best time because they don't get the same amount of spotlight time. Now, that could be two things. That could be the rules not giving enough crunch or detail into the social or whatever dynamics that are not combat. And therefore, because there isn't as much to buy there, there's no incentive or as much differentiation between a character invested in social versus a character invested in combat. Because with all the various combat options, you have, you know, the two weapon fighter versus the shield fighter versus the archer, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But like, if you only have one little niche of social stuff, then one social character is all you need potentially. Yeah. Well, it, you know, goes back to the old classic D and D party that you have a tank, you have a couple of people to do damage and you have a face mm-hmm. or a classic Shadowrun party for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and everyone having their specialty is good, but it's the system can guide the art, but in the, at the same time, the art, the game, the uh, the focus of the game can overrule whatever rules are written because they just don't pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. And that's a table issue that can't be that can only be addressed so much by a writing issue. Yeah, that's that that's completely fair. The you can you can bring the horse to water, but you can't make him drink scenario. 
-hmm. you can write all the rules you want, but if nobody actually pays attention to that chapter of the book, then it's like it didn't exist. Yeah. But to, to yeah, try and swing back around to where, I mean, because, you know, very valid points we're bringing up, but, you know, look... <sighs> Part of the draw, at least for me, with tabletop gaming is because it's so imagination-based, and if there isn't something for it, we can just make something for it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I'm sure it's happened at almost every table that anyone's ever played at. Somehow you end up with a custom item. Or, you know, well, I want to play a kind of like a this, but with this other thing. Mm -hmm. And so you end up building these homebrew creations, and most of the time... Yeah, they're they're not bad, but every now and then, you know, just because you missed this thing or that thing, suddenly they end up or or three levels down the road or, you know, so many experience points down the road, all of a sudden this thing has turned into a monster and now it's making it hard for the rest right. of the people at the table to feel like they're playing on the same level. And that's what we kind of want to talk about how not to get there. Right. Um my big advice to start off there uh, so moreover if you're doing this in a game if you're the gm and you are putting a experimental item or talent or feat or whatever you want to call it if you are doing some sort of homebrew experimentation with your pcs the most important thing is to have a little sidebar whether it's a session zero or uh before game has actually started explain to them this is an experimental item i have not foreseen all the potential consequences or you know I haven't looked at it from the angle of what you're going to be in five levels. I haven't looked at the new expansion that's come out, come out or is about to come out uh, and how that those things are going to complicate uh, if they are added onto your character, uh, the situation that is brought up by the item that I'm giving you. Who knows, maybe in the book that's about to come out in two months, this item is going to become obsolete because this thing that does almost the exact thing we were looking for comes out and we can just replace it like that. So the important thing first off is to set expectations insofar as this is an experiment. If the experiment goes wrong, we're going to have to change it. Mm -hmm. Now, in that regard, if you're dealing with something like a talent in specifically in Genesis, where the talents all have a particular XP cost, or if you rank them by a tier and each tier has a cost, our big recommendation there is to round up. You know, you're going to get a general idea as to where it should be. Round up. Go one tier higher because it's much easier to go down than it is to go up later. Yeah. You know, oh, look, we were wrong about that. Here, have five XP back is a lot better <laughs> than telling somebody you're now in uh, in debt for another 20 or so XP. Yeah. Um, that's a little bit trickier with items uh, insofar as there usually isn't really a cost with items. Maybe it, maybe it has a cost to activate the item, uh, which is very common in Earthdawn, where you might have to pay strain to activate a special ability through your threat item. Yeah. And another kind of adjacent point to this that I that I would I've caught myself this way a few times over the years. Remember, if you make some wonderful, nasty item for your bad person to use against your party, they will try to figure out how to get it away from your bad person and then have it themselves. Right. And even though they can't get away from it in certain games. Oh, that technology exists. You can do such a thing. Well, we'll retro-engineer that and figure it out for ourselves and have it forever because some people are crafters or artificers or whatever they're called in your particular setting. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a anything you can do, I can do longer scenario there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know the, what do you want to say, the, the, 
the one word answer to all of this is play testing, but mm-hmm. that's, that's, well, that ties into what you were saying about communication, but you know, a lot of people, look, if, if you hand them the new toy and say, take it for a test drive, when you go to fiddle with it, if you have to nerf it, you know, they, they grumble. Then I don't blame them. I would I right. probably have. <laughs> it certainly can happen. Uh, the other, the other part of that communication is not just the fact of letting them know ahead of time that it might have to get nerfed or changed or what have you, but also invite them in on the experimentation. This is sort of like an old trick of when you're at the table as a GM and you have a rules lawyer, you can either butt heads with the rules lawyer about how the rules actually work in the middle of the game when everybody else is trying to have a good time, or you make that rules lawyer into the archivist of I'm having a moment of doubt about how this rule works. Hey, rules lawyer, could you look that rule up for me while I keep the game going? Mm-hmm. Similarly, if you have a thing that you are experimenting with, you have the person that you are working with or the entire group all help out trying to figure out how this thing fits well. Because if you're just dealing with the person who has the item, yes, you're going to run into that kind of uh, headbutting or disgruntlement when it has to get nerfed. But if the entire table is involved, there's much more of a uh, community or um, perhaps it could even become a voting scenario where everyone gets a say as to how the item turns out. At the very least, uh, it works more into the area of one thing that I've been learning is that it do- you don't necessarily have to be a master at a setting or a system in order to develop it. But you do need to be an expert to really develop for a, a system you should be an expert in at least two different venues or areas of the game. It's extremely hard to be a master of a game, unless it's a very simplistic game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what I mean by expert here is experts know more than one section of the game particularly well. Being a master is very hard to do, especially if there are expansions coming out. It's just a lot of more material that you have to always keep abreast of. But if you're an expert in one or two areas, you know all the various implications that that item or playtesting item, we'll call it, our element might affect those systems. But then the other party member in your team could also be an expert in one or two other areas of the game, like how to be a cleric or how to be a bard. And therefore, they have a different perspective as to how that playtest item affects their part of the game. Mm-hmm. So working in collaboration with the entire group you get all these perspectives going and you can probably work out something that works throughout the entire game because you have all those perspectives and experts working together. Okay. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you what you meant by, I would say expert in parts of the game. You know, did you mean, you know, we'll say the, the magic system or the melee combat system or a specific class, or, you know, do you have a really good handle on, say, the probabilities of the dice mechanic? Or, you know, I, I was curious what you were defining as an area of the game to be an expert in. Uh, mostly I'm talking about uh, classes or mechanics because they sometimes go hand in hand and, you know, classes don't exist in every single game. But yeah, I'm really talking about these particular mechanics and how they work. Uh, the probabilities, not so much. Probabilities are far more a game designer's area of expertise. As a developer, you need to rely on the fact that the designer has already worked out all the various probabilities. Understanding them kind of helps, but what matters for a developer more is you have to see the the cost and uh, benefit ratio of a talent or an ability or an item 
and keep that ratio going throughout anything that you create. Okay. So if a feat gives you plus two to an attribute, that's your metric. And that's the metric you need to compare any other benefit for a for the cost of a feat in that particular game. So whatever your playtest thing is, if it's a feat, it needs to somehow compare equally with plus two to an attribute. Okay. That's kind of the fun thing, again, going back to Genesis, is you have the five different tiers of talents. You can work out the power level within those five tiers. And it's a there are some guidelines in the book about how to do that. And in, in the end, you're likely going to go, it's somewhere between two and three. And that's why we say round up, make it a three until you play test it and work it all, work at all the kinks and really get a feel for it and play. And then maybe you can bring it down to two because you found out, no, it's actually kind of limiting uh, or limited and you can bring it back down to two and give the character back five XP. Yeah. To give another example, shortly after FFG put out the Legends of the Five Rings game, I was asked to uh, come down to PAX Unplugged and GM for them. The problem was I hadn't read the latest Legend of the Five Rings game at that point, and I had a month to learn it. Aha! Uh-huh. See, actually, you wouldn't know this as, as we record this, but the episode immediately preceding this, we were actually talking with Kakita about L5R. Oh, nice. Excellent. Uh, I look forward to hearing about that from an insider point of view. Um, so I would not, because of the fact that I learned how to run the game, but I know very little about how to build a character in that game because I haven't played it except for GMing at cons. Mm-hmm. So I really know how to run the game and teach the dice system, and I can read the powers and abilities and such like that in a way to explain them to people. But like I didn't know what the characters had. I just knew how to read their powers in the, in the phrasing that the book used. But I have no idea like where in the book their power came from uh, or how to build that, rebuild that character from scratch because I didn't look at any of the character-building stuff. I read the core rules, the dice mechanics, how the powers work, how the rounds uh, break down, and stuff like that. So in that regard, I wouldn't consider myself a developer yet because I don't know the cost-benefit ratio yet for this level of power gives you this, that level of power gives you that. Right. So I still need more research if I'm going to start doing that, but they haven't invited me to do so yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, what I, I think the, the, the core concept you're trying to, to bring there with, the, with talking about the costing is, is, so to speak, err toward the item, talent, whatever, being underpowered for its cost, because if, if you have to give them back something or amplify it, players, and, and rightly so, are going to be much less grumbly about you making it cheaper or making it better in the future as opposed to turning it down. Right. Erring on the side of caution will prevent that sort of fallout. Yes. So so that's your, your kind of first thing. And then, you know, including the player or, you know, the whole table, really. Mm-hmm. What else? I mean, are, are there ways to to bench play test, so to speak, for, for, for lack of a better term, to kind of stress test creations without putting a, f- a full game scenario together? I mean, that's obviously going to be different. Oh, you mean white rooming? If that's what it's called? <laughs> um, that's the term I've heard for it. Uh, effectively, you put people in a white room, or sometimes it's called a gray plane. Uh, there is no plot. There is, you know, you and this person are in a, are in a fight, go. Uh, assuming that you were talking about combat situation uh, or a combat playtest item. Uh, it's like, yes, there is nothing other than kill this other person. It is a flat gray, gray plane with no features, no cover, 
and you have the feeling that you just need to kill this other person to be free of and go back home or something like that. Um, or it's just called white rooming where you're in a, uh, the characters, there is no other person to really play with. A GM could do this by themselves and it's a white room because it's a laboratory. You're literally using your characters, the characters as lab rats. Uh, you're rolling some dice and seeing how things come out and hoping that you get a broad enough level of experience uh, from those dice results and the scenarios you put them in that you come up with something that works or at least that feels right in the end. And then you bring it out of the laboratory and put it on the table and go live. And of course, it won't survive contact with the PCs as standard. Well, nothing ever does. So, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think to a certain point, that's the difference between you know RPGs and video games, right? It's because mm -hmm. in an RPG or in, in a video game, you're limited by one the constraints of of what they're actually able to code, but you're also limited by, for lack of a better word, the imagination of the developer of the code because. If they don't have code there that allows you to do whatever this thing is, you just can't do it. Whereas in, with an RPG, you just got to say the words, and most of us can do that. That's true. And and I think that's you know I think that's you know to me that's a I guess a principle to keep in mind is that you know if you're creating something, there are going to be things you didn't think of that you didn't foresee that you didn't test out, and it's that's the way it's always going to be. You know, sure. I, I'm guessing, you know, you've had that, you know, and, and your partners, whatever, you've all had that happen where you came up with something and then you go to actually test it out and someone does something else with it and you went, oh, crap, I never thought of that. Right. Um, and that's a funny thing that only recently, really, uh, well, past 10 years or so, um, has been a big change in the RPG industry. For video games, for the longest time, especially online, say, MMOs, oh, this isn't balanced, and we can run live testing while people are playing it and see all the various numbers come up, and yep, that class is doing way too much damage. Add a little patch, and it's fixed. You know, it's do a patch, and these people now are complaining about getting nerfed, but at least things are in some form of balance by the dev's point of view. Right. RPGs didn't have that luxury because they were printing physical books. Or... I recall somebody pointing out the fact of when 3.5 D&D came out, I think it was five years after 3.0 came out. It wasn't long. Yeah. Uh, I... Or at least it wasn't long in comparison to the difference between D&D 2 versus D&D 3. Oh, God, you know. And my friend pointed out the fact of, and that difference in years was brought to you by the internet with all the various communications that were, were possible with forums and whatnot that happened because of 3.0, they got all this feedback and all this errata and everything put together and rolled it out into 3.5. Mm -hmm. Now they kept that going uh, when they stopped fourth and decided to go do D&D next and eventually came up with five. They mm -hmm. had a lot of community, uh, community contributions and testing and stuff like that in order to keep that going. And that leads us to today with the DMs Guild and the Foundry and all the other community content places that are now allowing us to put out our own content. And because we're just electric, we can do updates, not exactly live, but we get feedback and we can do, like I remember I put up a update for uh, Studio 404 and somebody bought it immediately, was looking through it and caught one of the icons for the dice was wrong. And they messaged us on uh, Facebook and said, hey, I found this little problem. And I was happened to be online, fixed it, 
uh, upload another version of the file and nobody else was the wiser for it. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of thing is an ability that hasn't been possible in RPGs before. That level of accessibility to the devs and the response time of the devs and being able to get it back out into people's hands. As much as those gamers of a certain age <laughs> may really hold on to their physical copies. And I understand because I'm, I've been whittling down my uh, collection over the past couple of years, partially because I moved twice in three years and packing it all up and then displaying it again and then packing it all up kind of got a little old. So I stopped collecting physical copies because also the physical copies have errors in them. And then errata comes out and the PDFs are accurate. It's mm. a point I hadn't actually considered because I'm I'm much more of a, a physical book person. I, mm -hmm. I just, for whatever reason, I find them easier to read. Oh, they absolutely are. I have this weird issue of if I physically read a physical book, I, because I'm such a slow reader, I'm memorizing the entire experience as I go. I know roughly where in the book that particular section is and can turn to it relatively quickly after I've read the entire book. I don't get that kind of physical memory from a PDF. But the PDF has all the fixes. <laughs> yeah. My, my most recent horror story in that regard was Shadowrun 6th Edition. Thanks to FFG and working for them to uh, run, run Legend of the Five Rings for them, I was able to get up to Gen Con 2019. And sure enough, when I had some time off, I ran over to the Catalyst uh, area and picked up a couple copies of 6th Edition that had just hit the shelves. Yeah, that released at that show, didn't it? Correct. Uh, so and I was lucky to get the copies that I got for me and my friends to bring back home. Here's the thing. The copy of the book that I got came with a little card that said, here's a code to download a free version of the PDF. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, a document was released that included uh, about nine pages of errata. Yeah, that's a lot, especially at that stage, in my opinion. But Yep. <laughs> and, and that's the problem. From a certain point of view, that meant the books that I had just bought and now had to carry all the way home were paperweights because they had incorrect rules in them. Yeah. Whereas the PDF that I got the free download of because I bought the physical book was updated and, and accurate. Yeah. And then they rolled out two more updates over the next couple months. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I do like PDFs in some regard. Some of it also because, and not every publisher does this. And the one I'm going to point at because I've talked about it on the show the and I don't know if, if you've had a chance to read this, Brett, but Cyberpunk Red, mm -hmm. the linking in that PDF is so comprehensive. Anytime it references a page number or a section, click the text and you jump to that section. Yes. And then you click the page header and it takes you back to the index. Mm -hmm. And combined with that and a decent search search function, if if a PDF is taken care of that way, it, it is incredibly useful and i think some of it too comes from some of my early experiences with pdfs we'll say were um some of the random internet finds that were literally scans of really old books that you know were never released in digital yeah and and so at that point there there is no now now you can there are programs that will let you go in and you can actually link them all up yourself but i don't know about you i don't have time to do that to a, a file that is already done <laughs> <laughs> um since learning InDesign to make uh, my first uh, Genesis hack was uh, Earth on Genesis. Uh, and I taught myself not just how to develop for Genesis, but also how to uh, use InDesign 
and do all the various artwork and layout and stuff like that that comes along with it, including eventually uh, the interactivity, which is what you're talking about, the bookmarks, the links, and uh, all that sort of thing. Uh, and then when we started up Studio 404 Games, I was the person that knew how to do the layout and therefore have done all the layout for all of our products so far. Huh. Since doing that, any product that I buy, I have strong opinions about <laughs> their interactivity. <laughs> <laughs> to wit, uh, you had uh, Shane on a couple of episodes ago, uh, mm -hmm. and I've joined him and his crew playing villains and vigilantes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I took a look at their PDF and for such a, for such a big book that had very obvious, uh, chapter points, they have the sort of scientific manual where it's, you know, chapter 1.0, then some chapter 1.1 until it's like four digits long. Mm -hmm. You finally get to, you know, chapter two, but they had no interactivity, no bookmarks or anything like that. So because I have all the tools to do so, I added in the bookmarks in order to make it a much more functional research device. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's how I've been dealing with my opinions about interactivity now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see it now, especially, uh, you know, I don't, I, I want to learn how to use, you know, be it InDesign or um, Affinity Publisher or one of those, mm -hmm. but well, you know, see, I, I, you know, I, I do the, the whole adult work thing. I just run out of time too much. You know what I mean? I have heard that, Time is linear, and it has a infinite lifespan. Well, you know, see, here's the thing. I keep looking on eBay for blue phone booths or DeLoreans, and they <laughs> all go for ridiculous amounts of money. Yep. Uh, neat trick about that, though. Uh, I don't believe uh, only the DeLorean allows you to overlap your own timeline. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. But, yeah. Yeah. It, that is a, an interesting point you bring up, though, going back to where we were before we kind of ran off that down that tangent was that, you know, given the, the current digital age of publication, if you will, that, you know, it's possible for publishers to now go back in and fix things, even if they released it a little prematurely. So mm -hmm. maybe maybe as as players, we should be a little more understanding when, you know, the, the DM that we play with all the time and, you know, he has, you know, in addition to all the other stuff he does in his life or her life or their life, however you want to say it, you mm -hmm. know, they, they also take the time to prepare this game for you to play and maybe they don't get it right the first time. So, you know, if they tell you, hey, I made you this thing, but it may not be 100% right. So please, you know, we may have to tweak it down the road. Please be understanding. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and that also plays a bit, bit more back into the to my offered solution, which is make it a team effort because the GM is responsible for enough already. Yeah. Like, especially if you're working on something to fix a class or a feature, you know, you're just tweaking something that already exists as opposed to giving a whole, making up a whole item, whole cloth to give to a player. It's just, this ability doesn't look quite right. Let's tweak it this way. And I think that'll work better. That's affecting one person, but everybody should be on the lookout for how that changes the dynamic of the entire table. Yeah. And I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong here. And this is to kind of, to move maybe to another point on how to do this, but don't be afraid to just reskin something just because you want a, I don't know, a gorilla that's got a hawk head on it. Doesn't mean you can't use an owlbear stats and tell him it looks like a gorilla with a hawk head on it. <laughs> You know, and I know that's that's pretty samey, but what the point I'm trying to get to is, look, steal and reskin. 
Absolutely. Especially for your home table, no one's going to care, even if they do figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been running some testing for the new setting that we're working on, uh, Anarchy in Dragon City, uh, which is sort of a mashup between Shadowrun and Rifts and probably a couple of other things. But one bit of feedback that I was getting was uh, a summoner class that I put together uh, was able to summon a bear. And I used the common bear stats from the system. And they seemed that I like, got a lot of feedback saying the bear was too powerful and the bear was kind of stealing the show. And I've been thinking since then that I should probably just lower the bear stats, but still call it a bear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And I guess I would say that, you know, that probably even works with items, classes, whatever, a little maybe less so with classes because people are going to go, this is the same as a ranger. But you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but especially for, for monsters, you know, yeah, just put the pig in a different dress. Right. Especially if you were playing in a system that doesn't have a whole large collection of monsters yet reskinning is key uh, really just look for uh, to a certain degree ignore the numbers look for the special abilities that you want to use and then reskin around that mm-hmm. so another thing uh, that i'm actively doing on discord all the time is called the earth on west marches um, where we run a earth on game uh, living community people come in they build a character and they you know create a rumor that rumor gets picked up by a gm they work out a schedule to play the game and then the, a bunch of other players sign up for that particular game. person who started the rumor gets to choose who's going with them on the adventure, and then they have a great time. One of our GMs is notorious for taking the monsters that we do have access to from the books and reskinning it to suit the theme of the adventure, because that's a great way to keep the monster challenge rating within the realm of the PCs where they are without using the same monsters all the time because we don't have a great huge breadth of monsters to pull from yet. Mm-hmm. But just reskinning what they look like throws off the expectations of the players and they don't know it's that creature type until they use their special ability kind of thing. And even then there's that little seed of doubt of like, well, how much more does he change? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, you keep it the same skin, but you use a different stat block for it. Really throw them for a loop. Yep. Well, that also gets into like, well, they're all lizard men, but that lizard man is the lieutenant and he has levels added onto him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's lots of stuff. I, like, I guess, like I said, that's to me, that's the, the wonderful thing about gaming. And, and for a long time when I primarily played, I actually almost made it a point to to not read books because the way my head works, I do. I accidentally memorize all kinds of useless, irrelevant information to normal life. Like I've told some people, I said, I know more useless crap that wouldn't, wouldn't ever even come up on Jeopardy, you know? So as a player, part of me wants to maintain that, what do you want to call it? That innocence in character where, yeah, I'll try this thing because mm-hmm. it seems like the right thing in the moment. Even if from a meta perspective, if you have the knowledge, you go, well, that wouldn't be good. Well, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm completely there with you. Um, partially because of how I got my start in D&D. My first character was a character I made up at summer camp at one point. um, And he was killed by a harpy because the harpy kept using their song. And if I covered my ears, I wasn't affected by the song, but then I couldn't attack. And if I took my hands away to attack, I'd be affected by the song. So how am I supposed to deal with this scenario? If I had read the monster stats, maybe I would have known how to deal with that. Yeah. And it also comes back to, so one thing that I, keep sort of quizzing people on because it's so ingrained in the gamer culture at this point. How did you first learn 
that trolls don't regenerate fire damage. <laughs> did you learn it in play? Or did you learn it by reading the rule book? Or by reading a novel that included that bit of, like a D&D novel book that included that bit of trivia in there? I'm going to say I probably got it from Table Talk, to be honest. Okay, that's also valid. But it was Table Talk that was, you know, not in character? Yes. Right. So if, that's almost as, as good as reading the book. Yeah, basically. <laughs> as opposed to learning it the old-fashioned way of in play when you're trying to kill a troll and he will not stay down <laughs> mm -hmm. until you happen to whip out the torch and burn him to death or maybe the mage got happy with a fireball early. Um, so that, that's just my little uh, acid test of, you know, how do you find these things out and is the mystery still there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I See, I think too, maybe that's part of why I tend toward, what do you want to say, a little bit less common i don't want to say common but like the first campaign i ever really played in was a very well with the topic of the show let's just call it a very homebrewed fifth edition call of cthulhu delta green okay uh back in this would have been the mid 90s you know so it was the pagan publishing delta green still run in call of cthulhu and i mean we encountered well we we would run into uh agents Mulder and scully fairly often we had encounters with Predators, Daleks, just kind of whatever our, our GM thought would be cool. Sure. Monster <laughs> sort of situation. And, and, you know, like it was, it was a really neat campaign, but I think to a certain point, maybe because that was so, what do you say, non-typical, that had really formed a lot of, of what I look for in a game in that, you know, I, I want to not use the cliched options and I'll sometimes stress myself out trying to avoid them. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a, that is a definitely a issue that I have run into as a developer and writer. And the fact of, I want to do something unique. There's very little unique kind of everything has been done before. You can't plagiarize at the same time, but it's really hard to come up with something absolutely unique and interesting and engaging with the players and stuff like that. So it is an excellent goal to have, but it is extremely hard to pull off. Yeah. Um, so do you have any more points on this? I know we've kind of tangented off this, that, and the other thing, but it was all somewhat relevant. Um, the other big thing that I'll bring up, uh, because I keep touting on it, I mean, I was a communications major, so I'm going to keep on touting. Good communication is kind of key. Especially in the fact of we've just gone through a pandemic. I'm sure everyone has been gaming online in some fashion or another. Online manners will get you very, very far in developing, writing up stuff, playing with your own teammates. I fully believe that I got my first gig with uh, FASA to help develop Earthdawn because of my polite online manner. Uh, we were asking a lot of questions when we started up the West Marches game to try to play the game as rules as written as possible and do it as fairly across multiple GMs and multiple players and stuff like that. So we need to understand the rules as well as possible. So I asked a whole bunch, a lot of questions. There were lots of people asking lots of questions. Not all of them were very polite about it. <laughs> <laughs> and that burgeoned into a relationship with myself and Morgan Weeks, who is the head developer. And from there, I eventually got brought in to help with Mystic Pass. Ah. One other thing I learned from being the rules head from Earth on uh, West Marches is that when you bring up an example to someone about how something works or how something could should be played out, 
Uh, important element is, is to remove the word you from the example. As soon as you start saying you, it is accusatory or it is much more into the person's personal sphere or bubble uh, and they can take it much more personally because the word you is in there. That's all. If you make it them or for Earthbound, we keep on saying the adept does this thing, uh, that makes it much more topic neutral and it's much less likely to offend somebody because it's not them. That's a valuable little tip there. And being that not only are you possibly playing or working with your other players, if you're working online with a development team of any sort, you're likely typing at them more than you're actually audibly talking with them. So keeping a mind to the tone of your words as well as possible is very important in a medium that completely lacks it. Yes. And especially like I know for me in, in real life, I have a rather dry sense of sarcasm and that is terrible on the internet. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think that is a very common trait amongst gamers. And when it is a shared, when it's a shared quote, like if we were to sarcastically quote various movies uh, from our past, like say Ghostbusters or uh, Pulp Fiction, stuff like that, generally speaking, that's going to go over okay. So long as they somehow understand that it's a quote. Right. <laughs> but yeah, context is, is so hard to get right in internet communication. It really right. is. Uh, and further, uh, to go one step further, once you're done with the development and it goes out live, then you have to start talking with feedback and fans and people who are giving you hopefully constructive feedback to the work that you've done. And that's when you start needing to keep that civil tone in any responses that you give. And you're very likely going to need to start building up a thicker skin to take all that feedback well. Good advice. So I, I kind of intended to have you do this a little bit more off the top. But um, before we get into Game of the Week, which we always end the show with, do you want to take a minute to talk about... You know, you've mentioned some of the various work you've done. Do you want to talk about that? Talk about Studio 404 a little bit? Any of that stuff? Sure, thanks. Uh, Studio 404 Games is a producer of top-shelf products that we are mostly putting out on the Foundry, but we've also put out material on the Chronicle System Guild. Uh, we were able to get in on the launch of that in the summer of 2020. Uh, we just recently released two uh, products in this uh, in 2021, uh, Legwork and Larceny, which was a system I put together and tested and very much trial by fire as a way to run heist uh, encounters without GM PC adversariality, because the adversarial GMing is one of my big hot buttons of do not do this, um, but adversarial playing is also a factor as well. and. If you have both at the same time, it will just escalate and become a big mess. By by using the rules in Legwork and Larceny, hopefully you can keep everything up front on the table and everybody is understanding how things are going to be playing out. That does not mean that there aren't surprises. It just means that you can see the fact that the surprise cost something on the side that just sprung the surprise. Uh, so it didn't just come out of nowhere. It was, no, no, we paid a cost to have that surprise. Mm -hmm whether that surprise was a trap from the GM side or a sudden development of an item that they completely and totally prepped you know, yesterday, don't you know, when we didn't play that yesterday. But that's, that's very much a fun factor of Genesis is being able to introduce those narrative situations. Yeah, well, and it has the, the story point mechanic, which helps mm -hmm. facilitate that at the very least. 
Correct. And I created the legwork talent to enhance the story point mechanic in that regard. Aha. We also put out Mechasis, which is a it is a, developing a I like to think of it as a very unique system for how to run to build and run mecha encounters or campaigns within a Genesis game. Essentially, you're given a pool of points to build out your mecha with. Mecha have their own characteristics that combine with the pilot's characteristics in order to figure out what your pool is. So it plays very much like a hybrid character vehicle, if you're familiar with the Genesis rules. That sounds cool, because mecha can be so tricky to do. They are, and they can be. Um, But once you have down the vehicle rules, which are not the simplest thing compared to the rest of, rest of Genesis. The the force movement took a little getting used to. Um, but once you have a handle on that, and that's sort of a pun there, once you have a handle on the vehicle rules, the rest of it falls into place. The big thing to keep in mind is when you're laying out the the scene and the, and the map to make it bigger. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, all the mecha characters are so big that you have to, and are moving at such a speed, that they can cover a very large distance in very little time. So you are much more commonly dealing with things at long, extreme, and even strategic ranges than you would in a normal game. Uh-huh. And as I mentioned before, we are still working on, and we've teased on the Cannibal Halfling blog, where we got a review of Mechasis, the Anarchy in Dragon City setting that we've been working on for the past year or so. Originally, I wanted it to come out uh, late 2020 sort of in tandem with Cyberpunk 2027, um, but a certain pandemic happened and creativity was a little harder to find. Fair. I'm also in the process of working with Fasa Games to make a couple of products there. One is a expansion on the magical spells and other magical tricks that magicians can bring to bear. I'm forgetting what the released name of that is. Uh, and unfortunately, the other one I can't share because of NDA right now. Uh, but that one is going to be my first writing title ha huh. as opposed to just develop aha uh-huh. well pre-congratulations then thank you <laughs> even though i can't know what it's about <laughs> <laughs> all right so um now does studio 404 or yourself or both have uh, websites etc people can go to yep uh, studio 404 games.com is how you can find uh, all of us uh it has links to all of our products that are on drive through RPG. Of particular interest because of our topic tonight, I would recommend also looking at the setting notebook. If you're looking to make any setting in the specifically in the Genesis system, the setting notebook is a pay what you want title uh, that I put together with all the various tools that Phil and I have used in the past to make settings. It's all form fillable and ha- can do some of the math for like when you're creating archetypes and you want to make sure that all the XP costs for the archetypes line up pretty close to each other. Uh, we specifically recommend within 10 XP of each other within that setting. You would want to total everything up however you do that particular math, do it equally among all of them. And it also has a checklist of all the published talents in the Genesis books. Uh, so you can say this talent exists in our setting, that talent does not. Very nice. I've been meaning to go pick that up because I have something I want to start working on whenever I'm not doing all the other things I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that more commonly than you might think. <laughs> oh, I, I don't doubt it. And I know it sounds like a broken record, but damn, it's just life. You know, mm-hmm. 
the the best flattery that I've gotten from the setting notebook so far was somebody had started putting together their own setting, shared it with everybody, and it was a couple of the pages from the setting notebook that he had made all the various changes onto for everyone to look at. Mm-hmm. So like, hey, I recognize that page because it's very identifiable. <laughs> and so you're saying you, you've got people using that for projects they intend to put out on the foundry, you're saying, not even just you know, private table stuff. Possibly. Uh, I don't know what their end goals are precisely, but I know that it's being downloaded a lot. Some people are paying for it, which is always great. And of course, if you download it for free, you can always go back and if you like it, you can put some money into it after the fact and essentially buy it again Mm. for actual money as opposed to free the first time. And it all goes into the same pot. (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. As of yet, I have made sure to update it every time a new setting book comes out. And I know that Genesis has, or Edge Studios has released that Twilight Imperium is on the way. So once I have that, I'll likely be updating the setting notebook again to include those talents. Very cool. Yeah, I was going to say that's supposed to drop. Did the, the, the little thing they put out said, what, early summer or late spring or something? So like any time now? That sounds right, but I'm not sure. Well, you know, uh, again pandemic i'm sure throws wrenches in lots of plans so right we'll get it when we get it and we'll wait until then because we don't have another choice <laughs> <laughs> but as you pointed out because it's a digital thing and right. you know i know drive through does this you know if you've bought a pdf through drive through you can go back and re-download it again they'll usually send you notifications if the publisher updates the file right and so, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll probably try to put a link to at least maybe like a, an authorship link or something. Somehow we can figure out a way to do it to highlight your stuff in the show notes for drive through and, you know, full disclosure. Yes, we do use a drive through affiliate code. So if you buy stuff through the links, yeah, we get a little tiny kickback from drive through and credit there because we're sending traffic their way. Entirely. But for anyone out there listening who goes, all this, it, look, it doesn't cost you anything more. Drive through just gives us a little tiny percent in store credit and we use that like you know if we're going to buy something for reviews or anything like that or you know we're hoping you know down the road to do some more actual plays and we'll try to use that to you know if if people wanting to participate don't have copies of the rules to use that to get them copies of rules that kind of thing you know we're not we're not trying to to fleece anybody for anything (laughs) yeah affiliate links are entirely a deal between the affiliate person and drive-thru-rpg drive-thru is essentially paying uh, credit, as you say, to the affiliate for bringing traffic to their site. There's right. no cost to the click-througher. If you'd like to, it's a it's a little way you could support the show a little bit is if you follow the links we put in the show notes to drive through. We get a little tiny bit of credit for it. That's all. But anyway, with all that said, Brett, I know you listen to the show, so mm-hmm. do you want to do Game of the Week? Absolutely. Game of the Week! Game of the Week! All right. So am I going to go first or are you going to go first? Uh, I mean, host's privilege. Okay. So your choice. Okay. Well, I have something called up. And so hopefully it's not what you were planning on using because in traditional form, we have not informed each other of our choices. Right. Um, So everyone's probably played the classic dungeon crawl where you leave the village and you go to the dungeon and you fight the monsters and so on. It's pretty standard early gaming experience. Well, what about if you started as the monster in the dungeon and went in and raided the town? (laughs) So my game of the week this week is a game called Wicked One. 
particularly it's the deluxe edition. What it is, it's a Forged in the Dark game. So similar mechanics to Blades in the Dark, Band of Blades, Scum and Villainy, and, and assorted other titles all based on, you know, John Harper's work on Blades in the Dark. But this takes your, your classic, you know, dungeon delve scenario and turns it upside down. You get to play the fantasy monsters building a dungeon, launching raids on the surface to gather a horde, you know, and your assorted plans, along with pillaging rituals, concoctions, contraptions, and all sorts of building traps, all kinds of fun stuff. So, like I said, it's it's literally the classic trope turned around. And uh, the, the PDF for the deluxe edition is 20 bucks. There is a free edition listed in the listing. Not suitable for those under 13. Yes, yes, it does say that. So, yeah, that is something to keep in mind. It, it may not be um, suitable if you have youngsters at the table. But, yeah, they're saying, you know, it's got tools to build dungeons, uh, flexible spell system, ritual magic, you know, nine different monster playbooks, different themes for dungeons, some sandboxes for you to kind of start with. Um, it really looks like maybe not something you'd want to play for years and years and years, but it could certainly be something to do for three or four sessions and have a blast with. Mm-hmm. Uh, as some apparently monster archetypes, you got brain eaters and doom seekers, face dealers and gold mongers. I mean, those just sound awesome. <laughs> well, like I said, I, I'm a fan of any time you, you take an idea and turn it upside down. Mm -hmm. The premise reminds me of an old video game, Dungeon Keeper, that I enjoyed a lot back in the 90s. I've played it, whether I played it on PC or on my phone, I don't remember. <laughs> But yeah, you, I was thinking that reading this, it, it, it kind of feels somewhat inspired by that at the least. The art looks really good too. The, the art and layout looks good, which I'm, I've become used to from Blades in the Dark uh, books. Yeah. Their layout is very nice. Yeah. Now it looks like, can't tell if this is put it, it says it's from Bandit Camp. So I don't know mm -hmm. if it's actually done, you know, if, it, if it's full-blown evil hat endorsed. They have a very open SRD OGL kind of thing going. Right. But I did notice that the print-on-demand version is in the 6x9 format, which Evil Hat is so fond of. It's a big book, too. 360 pages? Yeah, but no... I'm not seeing a preview for it, so I can't look yeah. inside. It's... Well, you could download the free edition look at it that way. Sure. <laughs> but yeah. Like I said, that, that looks like something I might pick up just for funsies every now and then. Mm -hmm. The Blades in the Dark was a big inspiration for Legwork and Larceny, so I'm a big fan of the system. Mm -hmm. Ironically enough, I tried uh, Apocalypse World, specifically Monster of the Week, uh, that mm -hmm. came out for that system, and it didn't really jive with me very well, mm -hmm. but a lot of the side mechanics of Blades in the Dark I really liked. And so Legwork and Larceny was me adapting those mechanics into Genesis. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of had gotten that impression. I think you and I had talked a little previously about it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, my understanding is a lot of people say that, that the Blades in the Dark's implementation of heists is really, really, really good. Agreed. I haven't had a chance to read it. I actually I have a copy of Band of Blades sitting over here, but I don't have Blades in the Dark yet. Um, as part of the research for it, I uh, actually... Uh, JT Domino helped us out by running a game for us. And then some folks over at DFWRPG uh, included Kimber and I in an online streaming game of Blades in the Dark just so we could get our hands on it and get some experience. Cool. All right. So, uh, 
So in counterpoint to that, <laughs> I also want to do a bit of a shout out to Sin Nominee Publishing, because thanks to them and their free art pack for Stars Without Number, uh, Starkana, and several of our other products had some amazing art to put inside of them. And they came out uh, back in April 2021 with their fantasy version, Worlds Without Number. And I am uh, very okay. curious to see how this plays out, because as opposed to being sci-fi spacefaring, it is more classical fantasy role-playing. Okay. And who knows, maybe they'll have a nice art pack to download uh, at some point afterwards as well. This looks like it has some classic swords and sorcery heroes, uh, world-building tools to make your own world within the system, uh, adventure creation tools, and faction rules for fantasy worlds. Very nice. Uh, so it's been out for not quite a month and a half as of this recording. It's already a mithril seller, uh, and it's going for $20. Uh, that said, Stars Without Number had a free version that didn't have artwork in it at some point. So maybe Worlds Without Number will do similarly. Oh, wait. Yep. Here we go. There is a free edition of the game. Ah, yes. There we go. So yes, there is a free version of Worlds Without Number as well, uh, likely without quite so much art in it. So you can check it out before you go spending $20 to really see it in full glory. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things specifically about, about Stars Without Numbers. I know there's somebody on the our server who's running a Genesis game kind of with Stars Without Numbers mashed into it. But yeah, I think you're seeing this this these things where, where some of these indie publishers have... Um, you know, they put out one thing in, in be it a sci-fi context, and then they put out, you know, in this case, a fantasy companion or um, the other one that I, I just looked at it yesterday and somebody brought it up on the Discord. Um, Sean Tompkin, the guy that did Ironsworn, has a uh, a sci-fi one out now. And uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it. Star, Starforged or Starsworn or something like that. Okay. But last I looked, his, his Kickstarter's going pretty darn crazy for, for what he was doing. But again, it's kind of like this, you know, where they, they put out one and it was so well received. So they went into the other one. Mm -hmm. And I think that's always cool when people do that. Well, that's also part of the market. Fantasy is definitely the biggest one, but sci-fi is not very far behind it, to my understanding. So any publisher should make a setting that plays to both of those. Mm -hmm. uh, it, admittedly, you could be an expert in sci-fi or fantasy, but you're leaving some amount of clientele on the table if you only do one. Mm -hmm. At the same time, some systems really only work for some settings. Yes. Um, and it can be very difficult to extricate those systems and move them over to another setting, which is, again, why I'm really fan, a fan of generic systems. Well, I think, too, we, we're blessed in that right now in the, in the industry, you know, we've got a number of really good systems that were designed as generic. You know, you've got Genesis, you've got Savage Worlds, you've got Cortex... GURPS, Heroes. Cypher, yep. you know, and, and you know, I'm not going to say for all of them, but most of these were designed as a generic framework to then be skinned as whatever, as opposed to being designed as a fantasy system or a sci-fi system and then skinned as the other or multiples. And right. that can make a huge difference. Absolutely. We could, and I don't want to start in on a D&D &D bash because... <laughs> hey, there's a lot of people who love it. I've had a lot of fun playing it, you know, but it's not it's not my system of choice at this point in my life. But I will say I think that that game engine starts falling down when you take it out of a fantasy context. I've had the chance to play a little bit of, I keep forgetting the number, but there's a 
there's a cyberpunk setting called Carbon... 2185. That's it, 2185. That is pretty good. It still uses the, the 5e mechanics, but they've changed the classes around enough and the gear that it works pretty well so far as I've seen. The big issue that I have with it is apparently the guy who wrote it was an economics expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he extrapolated that the big part of the cyberpunk feel is that everything costs a fortune to buy. So it's extremely difficult to get gear with starting cash or really even after a couple of, of adventures and missions, you're going to have trouble affording anything. And they even talk about renting your guns. Like you can buy ammunition, no problem. But buying a gun is really hard. You can rent a gun just so you can use the ammunition that you bought, no problem. <laughs> you know what? That's... I mean, I, I, I appreciate it. It depends. See, cyberpunk's a, a setting where I think you have a lot of very different takes on it, and we yeah. could do a whole whole show on that. I, for lack of, you know, there, there are people who like their cyberpunk like Shadowrun with magic. Mm-hmm. Then there are people like me who like their cyberpunk like Cyberpunk 2020. Um, you know, and there are yet other types of, you know, do you focus more on the cyber, more on the punk, more on, you know what I mean? It... There's so many different takes on that. And yeah, but but the dystopian aspect, that's a, an interesting take on it, is that, oh yeah, you can rent the gun, which then, you know, if you want to take ballistics into account, now that becomes a whole other thing. Right. <laughs> but yeah, we could we could talk for hours and, and, well, given the fact that we had an hour-long conversation before we started recording, <laughs> I think you could end up chatting for an extremely long time if we don't wrap this up. Yeah, I think it might be better to uh, find the author of that and talk to him about the economics of why he chose that method. Uh, I would look forward to that episode because I'm curious why he made those decisions and what the basis of the logic behind it is. Dragon Turtle Games, maybe, to put that out? Mm, Yep, Dragon Turtle Games. Very good. I I think I have this because I think they did a thing at some point where they put it up for free and I snagged one Mm -hmm. because... Cyberpunk is one of the things that I'm just, it's, it's a setting that I like, right? Yep. And I went, well, I'm going to grab it because it's free, but <laughs> it's it's 19 bucks on drive-thru right now. So I don't know what they were doing, you know, if it was just something they felt like doing whatever, but it may have been promo- promoing an expansion or something, I think. Uh, well, also the sci-fi sale is going on right now. So it's bumped down by... Ah, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, and by the time people hear this, it probably won't be. Correct. It's ending uh, tomorrow. Yeah, no, so definitely, because, <laughs> yep, not going to happen. All right, well, uh, so so any parting contact information, anything like that for you? Big thing is to keep being creative, keep working with each other, and we have the power gamers. <laughs> all righty, well, with that then, I'd like to uh, remind you all, you know, we've got all our contact information for the show down in the show notes, be it email, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. We have a Discord server, so you can stop by and, and holler at us there. I spend entirely too much time active on there, but, you know, it works. But with that, you know, we want to remind you to be kind to each other and go play some RPGs. Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash meandsteverpg. Thank you and be kind to each other. for the cigar. Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You got to go down the street to the store and buy that.
Uh, I'm trying to think of what else to cover. Um, and also going over NDA stuff real quick. Hang on. <laughs> ah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Anything that you can talk can about. Talk about. <laughs> okay. 